Welcome to History Makers. I'm Matt Prater. Today we're speaking with Mike Rayson. Now, this is the first time I've met Mike face-to-face, but we've been Facebook buddies for uh, about a year now, so I know everything about him. <laughs> Mike's uh, an uh, international singer-songwriter, pastor, preacher, speaker extraordinaire. He's also the uh, chaplain for Tommy Emmanuel, well-known Australian guitarist. Uh, he's performed alongside Billy Graham, Darlene Check, all over the world in all sorts of countries, and uh, it's a real blessing to have him here on History Makers. Welcome to History Makers. Hi, Matt. How are you? Very good. Thanks, mate. Now, you're also a bit of a radio guru as well. You've uh, started in radio from the age of two, I think it was, wasn't it? Something like that, <laughs> yeah. But no, I've been in and out of radio for a long time, uh, in, at least in Australia before I relocated to the US. But mm-hmm. uh, but no, I've always had that love and passion for the medium of radio. Yeah, well, you've got a good face for radio too, so that's wonderful. I'm sure you've heard that before. Just like the back <laughs> of a bus. Yeah. Now, uh, you grew up in South Australia? In uh, Woodner, actually, which is a little town halfway between uh, Port Augusta and Sejuna out on the Eyre Peninsula. And uh, yeah, I grew up there and in fact spent most of my life in that area. Went to a Woodner School and Kimber School and also Carcoltaby School, which is a, a school in a paddock halfway between the towns of Minipa and Poochera. Because back in the 70s when they wanted to build a school, both towns were fighting about it. So they decided, well, we'll buy a field in the middle and build it there. So I went, even went to a school in the middle of a paddock. Ah, oh, there you go. And did you start out, uh, you know, into music at an early age? Or? Uh, music was always kind of there. Uh, I could always sing as a little kid, although really I didn't take any formal stuff until I was a little older. I remember when we moved into a town uh, off the farm into Woodner, and I was about 12 years old at the time, that I discovered the best thing in the world. And it wasn't sport, and it wasn't motorbikes. It was 12-year-old girls, and realised very quickly that they had yet to discover me. But in a place like Woodner, I mean, you, if, the, if you didn't play AFL, then, then the girls just weren't interested in you. So I decided to be a rock star, you see, because uh, they seemed to be interested in rock stars. And so that's when I started seriously taking, uh, or started to take music seriously. And uh, in order to achieve my rock star status, I spent the next six years learning to play the flute. And, the flute, okay. And uh, <laughs> it didn't really work in my favour, but what it did do was start a, a lifelong love affair with music. Oh, fantastic, because you mainly play guitar now, I guess, with your, when you travel? Yeah. When I play, tra- yes, uh, guitar and piano when I travel. Uh, flute, of course, I still can play a bit at clarinet, saxophone, mandolin, violin, um, bass, guitar. Dr- there's a bunch of instruments. <laughs> wow, you must be exhausted at the end of a gig, huh? <laughs> I'm telling you, I've got to play them all, all myself, all at the same time. <laughs> oh, fantastic. And, and tell us about your faith in God. You, you become a Christian at early age? I was about four years old. Um, there has uh, been really no uh, church attachment with my families, both sides of my family, uh, for many, many, many years before that. Uh, but uh, uh, back then I thought it was, uh, but a little old lady once uh, asked my mum if she could take me to church. Now, I've got to say, <laughs> I thought she was a little old lady, but she's still alive, so she mustn't have been that old. <laughs> uh, but through that experience, uh, that, that was the person that led me to Jesus and, and told me about who Jesus was and that Jesus had a plan for my life even then. And you didn't stray. Like, you, you stuck with it all through your teenage years. You know, some people have a prodigal time. You know, you, you, you stuck faithfully, did you? Well, there are different degrees of faithfulness, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but pretty much, yes, I, as when I joined and became a part of a church family, I've always been a part of a church family mm. since then. 
and tell us about um, uh, you ended up in ministry pastoring. Uh, how did you get, go from school to that? What did you do in between? And everything? I was in radio for a while, as mm-hmm. I said, and, and then uh, did some work uh, uh, learning and, and training to, for ministry and then entered into ministry. Um, had uh, three churches that I worked for in South Australia, one in Port Lincoln uh, and then two in the city of Adelaide itself. And uh, like Presbyterian? I was a part of the Uniting Church. Uniting well, firstly, Church, Firstly, it was right. the Methodist Church, yep. uh, and uh, I sort of come in through that stream, and then it was the Uniting Church from there. Oh, fantastic. Okay. And then you made a big decision at one stage to move to the States. Yeah. In, uh, in 2000, my wife and I became aware that, that God was certainly calling us to do something else, uh, and we realized that it was a missionary calling. We didn't know whether it would be India or Africa or, you know, we looked at organizations like Wycliffe Bible Translators and others thinking these could be good fits for us. And, uh, but we just didn't know where God was calling us. We knew that we were being called somewhere in the world. And then uh, came that fateful day in uh, September of 2001 when the television screens kind of exploded with news from America. And from that point on, we knew exactly where we were being called. But Matt, it didn't make any sense. Why would God call missionaries to the Bible Belt in America? And so we basically said no. We won't go. Like, like, it doesn't make any sense, God. Send us somewhere where it makes sense. But America to us didn't make sense. Or I guess on the flip side of the coin to that, I'd look at that country and think, Lord, there are more religious lunatics in that country than any other country in the world. I don't want to be another one. Thank you very much. But over a period of several years, uh, God began to work on us, saying, this is where I'm calling you. This is where I'm calling you. That call never waned, but only got stronger and stronger. And then finally, in 2005, we were presented with the opportunity to go. And very reluctantly, we went. But we've been there ever since. We're now permanent residents in the United States, so they can't kick us out. And you spend most of your time on the road. I think I, I think you mentioned you have eight Sundays at your church a year, and every other Sunday you're away travelling. That's pretty much it. Uh, about 200 days a year I was on the road last year, and it's been about the same this year as well. Um, after I finish this tour here in Australia, uh, I'm heading back again. And the first month that I'm back, I'm in, uh, I think in a row, I'm in Tennessee, Montana, Idaho, Missouri, and Illinois in the f- next five Sundays that I'm back in the U.S. So I do get around a little bit. And what do you share when you get up at church? Pretty much I'm not sharing a different message to what's been shared in churches for millennia. Um, Simply I'm sharing Jesus with an Aussie accent (laughs) and and teaching how to be authentic in the face of life's struggles. You know, as I look at the church in America, I see a church, and this is a very generalist statement, of course, that largely doesn't know how to be authentic, doesn't know how to live their faith warts and all. Uh, I'm someone that's comfortable in a skin that has a few warts on it uh, and living faith in spite of that. So you um, get up and you sing a few songs and then you preach a bit. What's your your run in the mill? These days, uh, when I head to a church, it's a lot of uh, testimony from uh, where I've come in my own life that's interspersed with songs that I've written about different different periods in my life. So it's it's very musical slash uh, preaching kind of deal. Although um, more and more, in fact, I've done 20 of these events this past year in the United States. Uh, I'm being uh, brought in by churches, uh, not not just to do music things, but to, to preach for four or five days straight mm. uh, for church renewal services. And we've worked with um, Oh, a bunch of different denominations mm. uh, working in that kind of model and sort of spending you know, four or five nights in a week starting on a Sunday uh, preaching and developing a theme and, and talking about different things. I love to talk about the very presence of God, the Emmanuel of God, the, the nearness and the nowness of who Jesus is. Now, in 2007... Uh, tragedy struck your family? 2007, uh, my wife and I had had the opportunity to go away on a holiday. Uh, We hadn't been away from our kids for about 10 years, both of us together. 
And uh, so we thought, what a great opportunity. And we live in the state of Tennessee, but we have uh, a married couple, friends of ours, who are in the state of Illinois, and they offered to have our children when we went away for just four days, uh, just to do uh, some Mike and Amy time. Uh, we went up to uh, Illinois that Saturday, and I preached in three churches on the Sunday uh, in that area, uh, in an area called Moline, which is actually where John Deere tractors come from, believe it or not. Mm. And uh, I preached those three services that day. Monday morning, we got up early and, and went to the airport in order to fly to Miami. And uh, we spent the day flying down to Miami, about to get on a boat that evening. And when we landed in Miami and the stewardess of the air- aircraft uh, said we could turn on our cell phones, we had a phone call, a phone call that uh, perhaps no parent should ever have to take in their lifetime. And the phone call uh, was one that simply said, we're very sorry, but your son, Sam, at 11 years old, has been killed. What What happened? Sam had uh, walked behind a horse. Uh, The horse had kicked, uh, had kicked Sam in the centre of the chest, and he died a very quick but very painful uh, death from that injury. Um, It was all over within a couple of minutes. Mm. How did you guys deal with that? You know, to be really honest, you don't deal all the way through these kinds of things. Mm. You continue to deal with it. But it certainly was a a difficult thing to walk through at the time. And still, uh, here we were as a family in the United States of America. Uh, We had no immediate family anywhere near us. They're all in Adelaide and and other places in Australia. Uh, But we had to begin the process of walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Normally when somebody dies, uh, there's that uh, short period of time between uh, the death and the funeral, uh, sometimes a few days, sometimes up to a week. Uh, But when the funeral takes place, that kind of seems to mark a new chapter in the unfolding journey through the valley of the shadow of death. For us, between um, uh, the the funeral service first in the US and his burial was a six-week process. Um, that we had to wait before we could get his remains back to Australia in order to bury them. And Sam is buried with his grandmother. Um, Amy's mum, my wife, died when she was uh, in her final year of high school. And so we chose to uh, bury Sam's remains with her remains in South Australia. Mm. I love it that you still say we have three children. Absolutely. I was only preaching this past weekend and I made here, uh, preaching this past weekend in Australia and I made the definite statement that while my son may have died, he certainly is not dead. Um, And we have three children. We yeah. don't have two children. Yeah. We always have three children and we'll always have three children mm. too. Can't wait to the day till you see, mate. Absolutely. <laughs> and you know, that's a constant thing too, Matt, um, not just with parents that have lost children, but for anyone that's lost anyone mm. close, a husband or a wife, there's that sure hope of of finally being with them again uh, in glory, uh, which certainly for us, we're looking forward to. But you know, God is very gracious and, uh, and provident and uh, just a couple of weeks before Sam died, it was Easter time of 2007, and I was in the process in the church where I was currently serving of uh, teaching confirmation classes. And uh, for traditional churches, uh, confirmation is a, a period of time where uh, children walk through a series of lessons in order to become members of the church, and order to also make a public profession of faith. In many other churches, it's called membership classes. We call it confirmation. I had 11 students in my confirmation class uh, in 2007, and the final lesson was going to be held on the Wednesday night leading into Easter Sunday. Nine of the students were going to be confirmed on Sunday. Two two were going to be confirmed at Pentecost about six weeks later. When I got to the church that night, got out of my car, began to walk across the parking lot. Somebody said to me, Mike, put the book away. And I looked around and, Matt, there was no one there. (laughs) So I thought, Rayson, you're hallucinating. (laughs) So I kept walking for the church and again I heard so clearly, Mike, put the book away. 
And I remember raising kind of one eyebrow heavenward thinking, <laughs> God, <laughs> if that's you, <laughs> you don't talk to Methodists like this. <laughs> I mean, Lord, we're not the frozen chosen for nothing, you know. But believing what I'd actually heard was the inner witness of the Holy Spirit at that moment, I put the book away. And what unfolded in church that night was miraculous. I just began to talk to these 11 kids about Jesus, all at different spaces in their faith journey too. One or two that had really discovered Jesus and were passionate about him and what he was doing in their lives. One or two that were kind of still under the wings of their parents' faith and some that didn't have a clue why they were there at all. Uh, But that night, I just began to talk about the Jesus that had captured and captivated and, and rescued even me. And these kids began to open up and share as well. And I've worked with plenty of groups of young people before, and you can only keep their attention for five minutes sometimes, not an hour and a half. But an hour and a half went by in this conversation. Literally, I looked at the clock and thought, where did the hour and a half go? But the conversation was winding down at that part. So I pulled out the book, and I heard again, put it down, put it down. I want you to pray for my kids. And so I said to this group of 11 kids, you know, you can come one-on-one and pray with me if you want to tonight down at the communion rail in the church so that you know that you know what you're doing is the right thing for you. And I thought I might pray with one or two of those kids. It certainly wasn't a, a man, you don't, have to, you don't have to come and play, pray with the minister, guys. And, and straight away I was joined by a young lady and prayed with her and it was one of the ladies, young women who uh, really had a passionate faith and was going on with Jesus. But then when Shelby went back to her seat, I was joined by another kid and then another and another and another came and another one, all one by one they would come and then another. And pretty soon, Matt, I'd prayed with 10 of these kids and with six or seven of them, I had sat there in the most humbled and open mouth kind of scenario as I'd listened to them. For some of them, make a first time confession of faith in Jesus Christ. One of the most humbling experiences and honoring experiences I've ever been involved in. But, you know, when you teach confirmation, there's always one kid. There's always one, and it's always a boy. And I had that kid in my confirmation class. Every time I looked at him, I wanted to take my hands and just wrap them around his neck and squeeze really hard. I mean, he always had a smart aleck comment at everything I would say. And I remember thinking that night, not even God can get that kid. Well, when I'd prayed with the 10th kid, there was a rustling there in that pew as he got up and came and knelt with me. I was more shocked than anyone, but I prayed with him, and when we'd said amen, he stood up and looked at me and said, Dad, because it was my own child, Dad, I love Jesus too. And I don't think there can be anything better for a parent or a grandparent to hear from our children or to witness in our children them growing in the faith or, or accepting Jesus or becoming a part of the family of God. But we just didn't know at that point within a few days that that boy would be dead, would be with Jesus. And so it's been a really interesting journey to this point, but not a journey that hasn't taught us something. You know, inbuilt into Christians sometimes, I think, uh, is this strange view of who God is. And this will sound completely wrong when I say it, because it is completely wrong. But Christians sometimes believe that the presence of evil has the power to change who God is. Now, I believe that all death is evil. And I believe it's evil because it's not what God plans for us or ever planned from us for the creation of the world. Sin and death were introduced by a different method and not by God. So I believe that all death is evil because God doesn't create us for death. But I do believe that Jesus works in, around and through that period of brokenness and vulnerability and and the, the pain and heartache that death brings. But I believe all death is evil. But we have this statement built into us that says, you know, evil has the power to change who God is. 
when we hit tragedy, the first thing a lot of Christians will ask is why? And why is a really healthy question for people to ask of God. Some people seem to think that you can't ask God why because it's like questioning God's sovereignty. I don't believe that for a second. I believe God welcomes our why questions. He doesn't give us all the answers, and I don't know why. And I don't have all the answers. And on the day that I do, I won't care anymore. But we often ask why, but sometimes those why questions go deeper and they become statements that begin with the same five words. And those five words are, if you loved me, God. If you loved me, God, I'd have a better house. I'd have a nicer car. If you loved me, God, and on and on we go. And for me, I remember shaking my fist at God and saying, if you loved me, you would have taken the reins of the horse that killed my child and commanded it be still. If you loved me. And if you can see where we get there, we're just that one step away from saying that the presence of evil has changed the fundamental nature and character of God. God doesn't love me anymore because of the circumstances that I've encountered in my life. But you know, the first thing I realized in the valley of the shadow of death, as we began to work through the pain and the tragedy and the grief of Sam's death, was that God was grieving too Mm. for one of his children who had encountered the evil of death. And that evil could not, should not, will not, and just can't change who God is. Mm. My God never stopped loving me even though my child uh, died a painful and horrific and horrible death. So that's one of the first things Mm. I learned, that evil can't change who God is. And the second thing was this. You see, there was a church in Australia, a big church, a really big church, that contacted me after Sam died and asked if I would come on staff as their pastor. And I thought that was a pretty good deal. I mean, it was a really nice salary and a really nice church and, you know, a church that a lot of people know about here in Australia. And uh, when they called me, I said, you know, come back to me in a few days and I want to pray about it first. Now, you've got to understand, I wasn't going to pray about this at all. I, I just wanted them to think I was going to pray about it. This sounded like too good of an opportunity. And they did call back four more times. And on the fifth time, I had an answer for them. And the answer was no. And the reason why, Matt, the answer was no at that point was because we'd been called to be somewhere else. We were missionaries in another country, and that is where God had called us to be, to live, to act out uh, who we are and who God was in our family. And I realized that if evil couldn't change who God was, then evil had no right reaching into my life, into my wife Amy's life, or Laura or Oliver's life, our two other children, and snatch away the call that God had placed in our family to be on the other side of the world in mission and ministry. But so often for Christians, when evil hits us, we kind of hide under the carpet in the corner and we think, well, God couldn't possibly use me or want me or have anything to do with me. Now my life is just too hard. But in my travels, I think it's not always the case, but many times the more broken someone has been, the more qualified they are for ministry, uh, the more they have to offer. And so there are a couple of the things that I learned in the valley of the shadow of death. Well, Mike, that is an inspirational story, and uh, I'm sure it brought a tear to many people's eyes to hear the the pain you went through, but the love of God that you you clung to through it all. It's it's inspirational. If people would like to um, contact you or find out more about uh, your ministry, what's the website they can go to? The easiest website is www.mikerason.net. That's R-A-Y-S-O-N.net. You'll find all the contact details on there in order to uh, get in uh, contact with me. 
that I can uh, look at your uh, CDs that are available and have a look and, uh, you know, preaching schedule. Maybe, you know, you might be preaching at a church near them. <laughs> Perhaps. I spend a couple of months a year in Australia. Uh, the yep. next time I'm going to be back in Australia will be July 2010. Mm. Uh, we haven't started booking uh, that trip yet, but that'll be the next time that I'm back preaching uh, throughout Australia. I'm, I'll be in England and, and uh, Central America and a few other places before then, though. Wonderful. Well, it's great to have you along today. I reckon you're a history maker, mate. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on History Makers. If you'd like to download this interview, just go to www.historymakersradio.com. There you can also find links to Facebook and Twitter, and also you can make a donation if you'd like. Thanks for joining us, and remember, what's the point of getting out of bed if you can't make history? I'm Matt Prater. Have a great week. History Makers.